Matt? Ben, what's up, oh, man? He answers this time. My goodness. Oh, but, yeah. You know, he, uh, if you listened to the last one, I, I went like, hey, Matt, Matt, where are you? <laughs> um, and it's Matt's not with us this time. And why, why did you uh, skip school? Oh, uh, yeah. I kind of rebelled out. I uh, had a little camping trip with my brother. We had frost advisories through the nights. I, I had a bit of that waited on me as well through mother's nature's vicious uh, <laughs> punishment. <laughs> I was telling people I was, you know, out in the woods finding myself. No, no, I was just kind of enjoying one last camping trip before we wrapped up the year here. But I, I heard word on the street is I haven't gotten a chance to listen to the episode myself. So you can save the shaming for Monday. But yeah, just save it, man. Okay, like I don't it's my Friday, we're doing a podcast. So only good vibes here. But I heard you got a, a chance to reflect on the, the last 10 years. You uh, started this whole thing. I actually wrote it in my calendar one time. So I'm trying to look it up as we speak. But sometime in kind of mid-August, I know you did day one of consultant for Life on the Frontier. But 10 years later, can you, can you believe it, man? Yeah. And you know, even just uh, my, my joke is Heath has been on the team for eight, eight-ish years. And it's him and Facebook that are my two colleagues that keep reminding me of the past. And so every time I, I go onto Facebook, most of my memories, you know, they're like just, you know, family stuff, random thing that I cared about at the time. And then also work memory. And it's, it's, that's the one it's like, it's so strange to kind of go, oh yeah, like that was seven, eight years ago. And yeah. And then now to be in someone who might think in terms of like every five years or decades, and it, it's, and it's a unique part of where maybe our team and frontier is maturing, right? We have a, greater portion of our staff that have worked, you know, four plus years, which, you know, like millennials, it's like dog years. That's like quite a bit of time to yeah. be working in one place. Absolutely. It's been interesting even having this happen in the 10th the year of just like, you know, you're taking more time to reflect, you're valuing the present more, valuing what you have more, even as society move into a season of gratitude with Thanksgiving on the horizon here. I raised my sparkling water glass here as a toast to uh, (laughs) cheers to 10 years, man. Congrats. Thank you. You know, it's more of a personal and sort of our organizational journey now that we're in our double digits for, for doing what we're doing. I I find it interesting just like as you know, for our team that where we're growing is so much of it is about like expanding on our best practices and, one area that we're really focused on is growing more partnerships with other organizations. That's pretty cool. Like, I, I think we feel like we know what we're doing and, and at least sort of something that I feel is like we kind of, we're one of those organizations that's going to be around for a while. Whereas in the early days, you just have that startup feel where kind of even any given day we're, we're on the frontier and who knows if a, if a grizzly bear is going to take us down. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny too. Some things just, I think, get really solidified. I know for some of our team, either in a new role or just like kind of their first fall at Frontier, you know, it is busy. It feels kind of high pressure, but it's, I think it's also good to be reminded of like, hey, you know, 10 years into this and, you know, this year's been, a, I think, like exceptional for our clients, but, you know, donors, they're still as generous as ever. Like they're still just happy to give, even though like, there's some people on these mailing lists and email lists that have seen these campaigns before, like more, more often than even we have in there. They're as generous as ever, eh? Even right now, like people trying to be mindful of donors and like, okay, 
people's situations have shifted. What does that mean? How can I be responsible? How can I make sure I'm not treating my donors like ATM machines? Yeah, you know, uh, okay. Well, a couple of things I wanted to kind of run by you. So one I want to talk about is like, I, I've got this article brewing of direct mail is not dead. And, and unfortunately, I, my time keeps getting filled up with actual fundraising work. And I'll and maybe never write this article, but I hope I will. And it'll keep me from writing my negative article about social media. So, uh, nice. yeah, so, stay hey, the positive side, Matt. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we're safe there. But one of the <laughs> things to run by you, and I'm going to share a thought while you process that, is, you know, old, old Matthew 10 years ago is just a little bit older than Ellie is right now. And one of the things that I talked about in the podcast is just like, one was were expanded use of video and podcasts. And it really actually took me a moment to realize that I was saying it on a podcast. And so one change over the next decade that I see is like, we have one client, Mennonite Central Committee, that's using a podcast, another person in our network, Impact Society, they've gotten going on their podcast and, and, you know, how charities are going to use podcasts and videos, again, for like town halls, tours, text to give will be, be one that grows. Um, but one thing that I think that gets shuttered down in my mind is formal education. And it's funny because I've done, done a job of, as a parent, of putting money into RESPs for my kids. And I, and I do wonder, is like if, if you're thinking of your education path, you know, being about a decade later than mine, if you think of the education path for Ellie being a decade later than yours, do you, do you see her in you know, that eight to 10 years, having the same education path that you did? Uh, and then while you think about that, is one thing that I was saying in the, in the late 2000s, because people were like, oh, direct mail is dead. And, and I was like, yep, yeah, so is consuming sugar from beverages. You know, and that, the, the, the joke being that like, people would think, if Coca-Cola is dead, okay, let's just see that die over the next 100 years, not five. And turns out Coca-Cola is still around. But the other one I, I just said is like, we'll always have a physical presence. So one of the things like we might not always have an email and who knows what our digital presence is, but it's pretty clear what our physical presence is. And that's particularly important in a time like this, right? Uh, you're in your home. Like we didn't go, you know what? We don't need homes, right? And you're like, we don't need commercial offices the way we thought, but we do need homes. And so are you sending communication to someone's home is as relevant as ever. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I think it's so funny, eh? Because like how education has changed, how the experiences matter more. I think particularly right now, people are deferring a year for first year, or they're not excited about like their first year in school because I think it's so much more as it has translated to the experience rather than necessarily the degree. You know, I'm a I'm a geography major. That doesn't translate too much into my you know day to day anymore. So what was going on in your head where like, did anyone go like, Matt, why are you getting a geography degree or? Oh, you know, it's, it's funny because I, well, I did like the, the business minor. So it wasn't all, uh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I don't know. I think it was just like, it seemed like a decent option at the time in the moment, you know, you're, you're 18 to 20. I think somebody told me once or just some of your more influential years. So if you take one course, that kind of like, 18 to 24, if we're being honest, Matt. Yeah, okay. If you take and like, oh, I just happen to have a good professor. It might not even be the course content. Mm. 
mm-hmm. itself. But you just have a good professor that kind of sways your, oh, maybe this is what I'd want to do. And it's easy just to go down holes that way. I think more and more, it's just like, oh, you know, did you go to school is what people care about more so rather than necessarily what you focused on with a few exceptions, of course, like depending on like the technical skills versus soft skills. Of course, we're not suggesting that doctors don't need to get their (laughs) formal education. Oh yeah, definitely don't want that. But uh, (laughs) there's enough fake degrees that are enough like already. Thinking ahead, I do think education will change quite a bit. And I think, you know, I think people are seeing more and more what they actually need in terms of like to be successful if we really keep education and like university or, you know, post-secondary education defined to the fact that it's like an investment for your career and it'll get you further ahead than you otherwise would. The amount of new ways to learn are just sprouting more and more every day. And I know you've talked about this idea of just like, oh, a lot of people can actually say NBA, even if it isn't a, Mm -hmm. like an accredited post-secondary institution. I know it's going to be, it's, it's an interesting one because, uh, you know, for anyone listening, like we did have education institutions, a couple of them as clients and they were during the pandemic, those were the two quickest to say goodbye. And to my knowledge, we haven't really pursued anyone and kind of grown in the area this year for that, even if it was an area of need. And I do think that's, it's going to be from a fundraising perspective, maybe it's somewhat callous to think about it is I think that's where a lot of philanthropy opens up for other sectors. Uh, Mm -hmm. Cause like if I sit back and I go, you know, the, the Benjamin Walter James Johnson hall at Royal roads university. I don't think so. (laughs) Right. Like just, I I think there'll be a lot of people that go like, ah, you know, actually my company isn't hiring people with degrees. I don't really see why we need to expand on your wing in the, in the business school. Because, you know, that's where a lot of philanthropy does go, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I, you know, in particular this fall, if you're a hospital foundation, if you're the more civic type organization um, yeah, library, I think, I think there's a transference of giving that would normally go to the, the UBCs of the world that end up going to other institutions. Being the more entrepreneurial type that I am, like my lines now, like Gen Zs don't need degrees. Mm. And I, I particularly see it in our hiring that like there's just so many ways to learn and it exploded this year uh, in so many ways. One of the things that I enjoy as a strategist thinking is like, okay, Matthew's going to graduate in the year 2030. How is that different than when I finished university in 2006? Mm. Um, and, and a lot of things we overassume will change, but then there are, are, are leaps that do happen. And anyway, then Royal Roads was one of the first to be like, look at us, we're an online first organization. And, and then that popped up everywhere um, because it's a very affordable mechanism. And then, like you said, I, I saw that trend where Seth Godin says, I have my alt MBA and then anyone can say it. Here's our, you know, like TELUS could be like, hey, this is the TELUS management training program MBA, right? Yeah. And it's just like, oh, wouldn't you rather learn from like a more apprenticeship style model, at least in our industry, than than going to university? And hey, you and I aren't teaching fundraising at a university or college right now, are we? No. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny even how like employers are getting involved. Uh, I saw this one ad from Shopify saying like, hey, you want to like 
they even used the word degree. So I, it was interesting, but they were like, Hey, do you want to become an expert in coding and get a degree in computer science? Some kind of wording like that. I know degree was explicitly used and we'll pay you. You'll get 4,500 hours of like mentored experience and like a degree to follow. And it was like a huge, like, holy smokes. Can you imagine if you're just a kid and like Shopify is willing to like pay you to get a degree and then you're set up perfectly for a massive growing tech company here in Canada. So it's amazing just to see the pandemic has just accelerated those modes of education, like in the same way, other things like Zoom and, you know, remote office environments have been accelerated as well. Yeah. And like, okay, for dummies like me that haven't been to university for a while, like, are we talking like UVic tuition? Would that be like 5,000 a semester, 5,000 uh, over the course of a year? Like, how much do you think would a, a BCom or a bachelor of BS, whatever degree that you got? <laughs> Had to go there. <laughs> if if you enrolled now over the course of like, if you took the four four years, like how much does this cost to you? Over four years? I think yeah. they do about, you know, 500 to 800 bucks a course. So okay. 2,500 a semester, that brings you to 20K kind of as the, as the okay. floor. Yeah. Maybe closer to yeah. 30, 35. Yeah. See, I did the smart poor kid thing of going to community college for my first two years and living in my mom's basement. And I was also quite young. So like, I think it was a smart move to like move out of the house when I was 19. My stepdad was very quick to demolish my room. Like literally, he's a, he's a contractor. So it became another room in the bed and breakfast. And I, I kind of grew up like Forrest Gump. I don't know if you remember the movie because it came out before you were born, I think. But um, it now. <laughs> it's a really just coming out swinging. But he, he grew up in, in a bed and breakfast. They weren't called Airbnbs back then. They was just bed and breakfast. Okay, you got it. <laughs> you just found the right gear and you're just going as fast as you can. Just hitting the gap. And um, <laughs> anywho, and then what was amazing was like, it was, you know, like it went like $2,000 over a course of that eight months. So less than $5,000 for getting my diploma. And then it was like around $12,000 for a year at Royal Roads and then you're done. And it's like, do this for 11 months. So Heath on our team has a high school diploma and then 11 months at Royal Roads and therefore a degree. So even then, uh, we were the first generation really to start discrediting the word degree. <laughs> and so I was done and out at 20. And then I, before I finished, I started working at Royal Roads. And I, I do remember the day when they paid me, I, you know, here's your year-to-date pay. When my year-to-date pay was more than the you know, $12,000, $13,000 I paid them. Um, and, and I just had a good, like, who's winning now, Royal Roads? <laughs> <laughs> I've broken even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've taken my money back. Um, and anywho, so one of the things, uh, again, and, you know, universities are, are charities too. So it's, this wasn't a complete waste of our time. And, and learning fundraising, this is, to me, honestly, I think that'd be more helpful for us to have these discussions and talk where we're at for fundraising. Uh, than sending any of our, our young staff to to get a degree in fundraising because I think those you know those who can't do teach sorry if you're listening to this and, and that's your full-time job is teaching fundraising because it's more rewarding to actually do the work 
And secondarily is I think the more primary skills that someone needs to learn in fundraising are around psychology. Like in the future, I want us to future podcasts. I'd like to, for us to talk about the Enneagram and kind of what that means for me as a fundraiser. Um, learning marketing best practices is great because it's good to learn principles broader than the niche industry that we're in. Mm. But the, there's just so much more. It's like storytelling is important. There's sort of persuasion, negotiation. I don't know if you were to create a, a course series and you're like, okay, we've got the podcast. What else would someone who want to be a good strategist on our team want to learn? Well, I think like the psychology, like the why is just so important. I think sometimes like as marketer, especially within like a digital environment, like direct response as a whole, I think it can be easy to go like, oh, we can test this and this. And it's on like, it might be more minor tweaks, which do bring value, but on their own can be sometimes overemphasized compared to understanding the broader why based on important fundraising pillars. One that comes to my mind is just like donor fatigue and people just go like, okay, mm. there's, there's so many things you can, so many times you can ask a donor and you need like, this is the perfect ratio rather than I think my mind always goes like, well, what do donors need after they give? Like what would be important to them? So they're excited for the next time to give. It's going to be like a joyful kind of giving experience. Yeah. That's kind of the, the number one thing on my mind. Moving into year end, it's this is when people are most you know, generous and it's this, I think a lot of people can struggle with this idea of like, well, I know I only have a few months here to kind of like seize this opportunity. I want to like go with the momentum that like my donors are willing to go with. I don't want to lose out if other nonprofits took like the actually decided to make an ask and I didn't and they were the ones who recouped some of the financial growth and benefits. I think these are questions a lot of fundraisers have on their mind right now. Like maybe their current plan, they kind of have cold feet of like, it's been a crazy year. Is this too, is this too much? Is this not enough? And this idea of, am I going to treat my donors like ATMs and, and tire them out? And is donor fatigue real? Yep. So my helpful reminder of donor fatigue is bad fundraising. Right? Everyone likes great communication that treats them like a partner. You know, not everyone, everyone, but when this idea that everyone can get donor fatigue is like, of, of course, everyone can be frustrated with poor messaging that is clearly not addressed to them or is, isn't part of a, a shared journey. So no one likes reading boring writing for what, right? And so I think if you have cold feet, that's a separate thing. That, that to me, I like to call charity narcissism which is this presumption that your donor is thinking about you almost ever. And, and they're like watching to see what your next move will be. And be like, oh, I wonder if this organization is going to send me a, a letter in three weeks. And boy, will I pounce on them when they do. And like, I, I, have a, I have a tally on the wall for how many times they email me. And boy, if it crosses 20, I'll be, I'll be right on the phone. And, and so... You know, of course, there's always one person that every fundraiser could be. Well, I actually did get a call like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's definitely a range of, of humans out there. But what we're talking about is in generalities. And, and I, I do think donor fatigue is synonymous with, with just a poor plan and poor fundraising execution. As a fundraiser, kind of working back to one of the things that I was saying is like, I really want our, our strategists to learn empathy not just for our clients, but actually one of the, the biggest challenges as a fundraiser in general 
is you'll almost always be in a different situation than the people you fundraise to. What I mean by that is, so I am 34-year-old single dad living in Cook Street Village. I don't know how many of our donors at all fit my profile. In particular, I was 24 when I started writing our fundraising peels. And, and yes, team, I was in production as well. And, you know, I didn't just buy the company from scratch. Anyhow, you'll generally be younger than the people you're writing towards. And so we're not writing from our own experiences. Another fundraising agency, they were saying that, you know, I, I noticed that their entire team were, were quite strong and overt Christians. And I was like, well, this is kind of a surprise to me because, you know, that's illegal to really kind of make sure you're doing that. Um, like, what, you know, what is this Earl's? Are you, are you only hiring a certain type? And like they, they, their response is like, well, we want our, our team to understand kind of who they're fundraising to. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good marketer. And so I think when we think about like things like donor fatigue and, and one of the reasons I caution anyone being too data-driven is to forget the story that might be happening. And, and one of them that I kind of remind people is I, when I was a kid, I used to send letters to my grandma and, and she'd send them back. And my kids don't do that to, to uh, my mom. And the isolation and loneliness in Canadian society now is, is getting extreme. Uh, mm-hmm. like we're, we're not a village. You know, I, like I said, I moved out when I was 19 and never to come back again. And, and the stats say that once I did that, I was in the final 2% of my time with my mom. And so kind of bringing that empathy on, on for her is, you know, she's, she's had her time with me. And where else will she engage with, with community if it shrunk like that? And one, one antidote to that loneliness is a feeling of connectedness with another community, which might be where they give. And one thing that I've said for so long is only so many people are eligible to join the charity as an employee, right? They only have so many positions. Even then, there's only so many volunteer opportunities. But the, the opportunities to be someone who's on the team as a giver are huge. Mm. And so I'll push it back to you because I've, you know, I've had more than two cents in this. But uh, like the big thing to remember is like, it's an opportunity to join the team by giving, even if you have no physical capacity to it, if you're not nearby, if your time is consumed doing something else, right? Like we have jobs, right? And it means we can't work full time for the, the charities we might love most, right? Yeah, well said. It's funny to hear stories of how uncommon it is still just for like donors to receive a thank you letter or call. Yeah. Like people become fatigued with anything, like any kind of communication when it's non-relational or it doesn't bring them value anymore. For charities, so much of the value is like really founded on this idea of like, hey, I feel like I'm a part of like this mission and like a part of the cause. I'm a part of the team. And like when I give it, you make sure that like, I like get that feeling. I think it is important for loved ones. Like when we're trying to like build a relationship, we do like invest in like, Hey, we wanted to make sure you got this great story. I know we talked about it in this appeal, what we were trying to accomplish and this unfinished story that we needed your help with. Here's the finished version of it. And like, we're really excited that you got to be part of it. I think, you know, the relationship component is something that like, I think can be easily forgotten once kind of charities begin to scale. And, you know, we automatically, they assume, oh, relationship is like me knowing that person being able to call them on the phone. 
when like I think that might be like a misleading way of kind of defining current relationship more so just in terms of like you know it's easy to feel like we have relationships with our local representation and that sort of thing I won't get into politics but relationship doesn't mean just like who you know and like if they're in your cell phone contact list but more so just treating that donor like a person and like offering opportunities for them to get involved to feel involved and that they're uh, they're a major part of the mission uh very well said something that you mentioned which was like you know once they're scaling i actually think it's a there's an, a secondary issue is actually preventing them from scaling is a misunderstanding uh, of how to manage relationships hmm. um so, and because uh, what I don't want a uh, takeaway to be is like, well, they, they think you can mail or email an unlimited amount and th- there's limits to the value of direct response marketing. I think one of the things that we're saying is really growing the complexity of what you do. Cause like, again, not everyone wants to be a super loyal person. Right. And so when we think of a database, you know, a CRM is, you know, like customer relationship management tool. Right? So have you built processes so that you could be encouraging someone who calls and says, don't mail me anymore to say, hey, um, we do have ways for you to be mailed our, our most critical mailings. And have you trained someone who receives that phone call to say like, oh, I'm so glad you're, you're reaching out and talking. We do have other, other you know, means of communication. Can I set you up this way? versus an untrained person and an undeveloped segmentation system where they're like, oh, okay, I know how to hit do not mail. Um, sorry, sorry that you had to communicate to us, goodbye. And, and that's what you're describing is that, that typical charity that is focusing on costs, not just on, on organizations like Frontier that raise them lots of money and then they're like, well, you know, why do I have to pay for postage and print and all these things that are, are quite affordable as compared to an in-person fundraising or calling and and whatnot. But one of the things that really kind of holds us back for helping an organization is that they don't invest in in actual stewardship, right? And so how do you report back and how do you thank are incredibly important ways of keeping people as you grow your ask fundraising. And, And have you thought through you know, positive messaging, how to sort out people who only do want to hear once a year or twice a year versus the very loyal and understanding that there needs to be multiple donor journeys. Yeah, those like two pieces are just so important. Using positive themes, like after I give, I want to know my gift was able to make a difference. And it can be a bit overwhelming to know like, oh, we're nowhere closer with this problem. Like it still persists. And I think that can be another factor into donor fatigue. It's just, there's always a reason to give. I think that important piece of like, hey, your gift did make a difference. Like we want to show you, we want to let you know, because your generosity, we're able to pursue this mission. I think that's like a really important part. Is like this organization a good steward of my money if they need to always come and ask me? Versus like four or five times a year where I can get involved and make a difference. If I know my gift is making a gift and the, the charity is being a good steward of it, I'll want to give again because I, you know, people are goodwilled and, you know, this is my beliefs now, but are goodwilled and, and want to be generous and help others. Yeah. So I think going back to that idea of how do we combat this? How do we restore the balance? Like what is like a healthy balance look like to you? And I, I think this does matter based on the charity. So if we have two local clients, the Victoria Dandelion Society, Children's Health Vancouver Island, it really matters a great deal. 
mm. one versus the other. And the concept of investing and growing the, the opportunity for children's health on the island is not a $20 problem to be solved. The perception may, may be a little bit too much because of the work we've done. The perception is a $20 problem to help Reverend Al care for his family. Uh, is, is his term for the people he serves. Right. And so in, in that case, it, it is being mindful, like you said, if someone thinks, okay, well, job, job well done by me by giving that $20. And, and then there's more communication back that seems expensive. It is just remembering that like, if he reports back on the impact of it and then saying, actually, there's another problem to be solved. This one, this one costs $50. Will you join me in solving this $50 problem? And I, I think together we can make it happen. And for, for lives like Kyle's. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, that's a fundraiser's way of viewing it versus, hey, I know we tricked you into $20, but we're back. And actually, we're going to ask for more this time. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but with the, the children's health is like, the, on your watch, don't you want to be the, the, the people that expand and healthcare to sort of the, the most vulnerable children and the most isolated single parents. And like, do you remember a time when, when you were giving birth and when you were a young parent, like, don't you want it to be better for them? And like, it's, it's, this is on your watch. Like let's do as much as we can to improve society in this area. And it's like, you can go so much further, right? because our culture is preconditioned to think some problems do have a a bigger price. Yeah. I think it's just about like understanding your priorities. We don't want to try to tell our donor base that we're doing a million different things rather than just like, Hey, what is our mission? What are we focused on solving? Um, But there's like different ways to give to kind of have different impacts, you know, common for like a poverty relief organization. They might go, Hey, you know, this is our, our, our Easter meal that we're going to help bring this to, you know, people in need, that sort of thing. But then we also might, you know, run a campaign that the ask amount might be higher because we're actually trying to get, you know, kids living in the downtown East side, a chance to attend summer camp. And these are two different problems, but like they still align with our mission. And I think just finding, you know, what the story is that will inspire them to give, to feel like their financial gift is going to be put to good use. And the narrative aligns with their values. Yeah, we're going to get all theological for a second. Matt, do you know what the word incarnation means to put you on the spot? (laughs) Incarnation. You know, Ben, you're just so good at explaining. So why don't you define it? Nicely done. I Um, just feel like it's one of those words that you go, yeah, I do. But like, I feel like I could botch this easily. All right. All right. But chili con carne. Do you know con carne? No, that I do not. It's, a, it's kind of roughly saying chili with flesh, chili with meat, carne, vor, right? Uh, meat eater, right? So when, when a, a deity was reincarnated or incarnated, or this is God incarnated, it is just literally saying taking flesh. So when we say like, you know, let's flesh out an idea, you know, and, and just kind of the, thinking of the term within a fundraising context is... Often a new donor is, hey, uh, there's, there's a person in need, the cat in the tree. Let's go save the cat in the tree. And you've done that. And now it's your, your job to, to start fleshing out, right? To, to kind of bring uh, to life the full incarnation of the organization. 
And it's a, important for two reasons. One is a lot of our charities that fundraise for meals get known as soup kitchens, which isn't really as much like our generation thing anymore to think of them as, but it is definitely the sort of the donor base right now. And, and so when we think of a fleshing out of, of the year or multiple years as a donor is saying like, hey, you know, not only did you have a chance to save the cat from the tree, you have an opportunity to feed it, right? And it's like, where, where should that cat be? Like, should it be out in the alleys or should we provide safe housing? And actually, that really was a very traumatic experience for the cat and for it to live at peace for, for the future. Like, we need to actually sort of give it actually more social contact with others and we need to be there and, and grow with that cat. And, you know, like, what are we thinking in terms of like that cat had kittens? And you're just fleshing out the like immediate moment was just urgent. I need to help. And then realizing, wow, I actually do care a great deal for this, this cat that we're talking about now. And how can I be part of that bigger journey? And, and from a branding perspective, what you've now done is you've fully fleshed out who you are as an organization. And that's important because otherwise, like, what if you stop rescuing cats from trees, but you still do everything else? Right? And yeah. this is real. If you stop serving meals, <clears throat> 2020, are you known as an organization that, you know, close houses cares for the poor, even if you don't serve meals at lunchtime. One of the things that like maybe you could speak into is that leads you into kind of asking more appropriate amounts and, and reporting better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think the asking enough is so important. I think one, like I read this one kind of like, uh, I think it was like some poll for kind of fundraising related metrics. And one of the top reasons people give was, I feel like this charity needs me in order to do their cause. And I just found that so profound in terms of like people, they want to make sure like an organization successful, like, Hey, do you need more like financial support? Like that's one of the, the first things I heard from our clients was COVID struck. And it was just like on the phone going, Hey, like I've got a gift ready for you if you need it right now, or I can hold off till maybe like things are more affected. And just like to see the responsiveness, this is particularly like from major donors, but I think in general, what we saw on the annual giving level reflected that as well. It's just like, hey, I'm here and ready to give because I know like this is, you might need me. So like, yeah. like uh, make sure you ask. And you had a great, like pretty, well, I won't give you too much credit because I think you, you kind of had some good comments, which made it go viral. But you had that one post on LinkedIn of like, you know, um, my kids aren't going to summer camp. Like I'm staying at home more. I'm not getting lattes from Starbucks, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I've had more money than ever. Like, will you please like ask like, and that's just like, it, we've been reminded through that, like through like polls that we've seen on kind of news outlets of just some Canadians, not all. Like, I don't want to speak like that. Like we're in happy times and things are well, but like some Canadians are doing more well off, particularly like executives and people who are like knowledge workers who have been able to work from home who are, might be saving money. We've just been reminded of that, like, hey, if you haven't been asking them, like, they might be in a situation where they want to help. And at the very least, you can still offer that to your wider donor base and just be respectful. Like one thing we saw was just little buck slips saying, like, if you're not in a position to give, please don't feel like you need to ask to be removed from the mailing list or you need to give. Just like, we hope you can enjoy the stories and just stay engaged till you are able to give again. And I thought that was like such a great way to value a donor as a person 
and kind of relieve some of the pressure, but still say, Hey, we still want you to know what, like, you know, your generosity in the past has enabled us to do. So just try to forget about the ASEAN. Like we want to keep you involved until like you might be in a place where you can give again. And then the other component of it is like, I always say, you know, like ask more, thank more, you know, people will say like, Oh, you need to like do like several, like a few pieces of communication before and after every ask, like every time somebody gives and that might be, Oh, okay. I need to send three emails, like going heavy into my programs, but you know, just like their e-receipt, a little thank you call and a message to kind of follow up can easily be like just three easy touch points. That'll just make a donor feel really great about like, wow, like, and I think part of donor centricity is not just like donor centricity in the ask, but donor centricity and like the thanking as well, that their gifts were able to like make this possible. Acquisition can be expensive and, you know, ads and awareness can like, you'd be timely and it could be hard to measure kind of the ROI right off the bat. But like anybody can thank a donor. I, you know, I'm speaking to quite generally here, but I really do believe like any charity can thank a donor well. And if you're able to just like a thank a donor really well, show them how the gift was able to make a difference and really make that a joyful experience. Then like when another opportunity comes to give, like to solve a different problem, that donor will be excited and ready to go. So I think really just like, those would be the two things I'd say is rather not like pull back. You should actually be dialing up and asking more and thanking more. Absolutely. All right. Next phase of the podcast, Matt. Well, let me get to it then. So we're jumping into our junk mail. So for those who are first time listeners, every episode, Ben and I will answer questions from our team or some clients that we work with, or even just listeners like yourself. So please, if you ever have questions, just send them to junkmail at frontier.io and we'll be sure to talk about it in one of our, our upcoming episodes. So without further ado, I'm midway through fiscal year. Our results have been tremendous. I got 5,000 bucks. I know I should be investing that in my fundraising right now. Super small, feels like a really tiny budget compared to our organizational budget. 5,000 bucks, what should I do? Acquisition, 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 acquisition. Possibly if you have no idea what you do and or really need to go like, do we have, do we, are we ready to do marketing? Maybe if you're, you're kind of that far off, it's like, okay, like, get your messaging down but that's that's just so easy to copy from others if you're just getting going uh to be you know you just have to be reasonably accurate what kind of charity you are and then be like i'm i'm going to for the first while sound like this other charity which is perfectly okay just imagine yourself saying like oh you know i don't know about launching a coffee shop there's already other coffee shops or like other restaurants it's just just do it better than them giving is a universal need and it's you know, it's never too late to start a charity, but yeah. And we could go on as an aside about what it's like with there's so many charities, et cetera, and, and amalgamating, but nonetheless, acquisition until, until you're a decade old and established and you have great reactivation campaigns that, and then I've got an article that is going to be posted on another website soon. I guess the guest post is what it's called. And, and just the math of it is so important to be doing acquisition. And then even further, if you found one method that works, you need to now diversify. And I, and I really, you know, it's a challenge that we have sometimes with our clients. And, then, and it, it goes back to some people viewing acquisition or fundraising as a mystery and, and not a, a clear strategy of investment. 
because you know, and, and we've had these conversations. Like again, if you've if you've done something for five thousand dollars, and then you're, you know, hey, we're putting on a gala, and it seems to be bringing things, or we're touring churches, and they they sign up, and it's like great, great, great. Now diversify. There's just something I was a mean strategist to a lot of our clients for for years. One of them it just seemed like it was about to have a heart attack when we were like, hey, what if you quit doing events, and invested all of it in this other way? <laughs> It was an awkward conversation, but um, well, hello, 2020. And I wonder, I wonder what's happened to those events, and you know, the organizations that were relying on going into churches. You know, Matt and you, you know, I, I call those my my good ideas getting out of jail when when I, I've sort of taken a stand as a strategist, and so I, I've been I've been kind of enjoying the Schadenfreude of of event obsessed organizations. And, and so what I'm really saying is like acquisition, acquisition just means making sure that you are doing something that brings in new donors. Like in our world, we rent lists and we, we communicate through mail. We do ads and we get people to sign up for email. We, we put inserts into newspapers. We yeah, just, there's so many ways that even like that we view that we have quite a few tools outside of that are even more opportunities to acquire new donors. Um, it's impossible to keep a donor forever. We're humans, right? And then it's it's also sort of a dating game, right? Where maybe I am interested in your charity, maybe I'm not. We need to get me in the door and then experience being fundraised too, right? Like it's okay that donors leave. And that, that's part of the, the donor fatigue conversation. But we've been working on our part to make sure it is very accessible for donors, for charities to do acquisition at a very small level. Um, and, I, and I think that's something that our peer organizations, if I ever talk about like this, really don't, really don't help charities when they're small because it's easier to do it with bigger numbers. And so we've been putting in strides to making sure that, that you should be able to spend $5,000 on an acquisition campaign, see meaningful results, even if it doesn't mean acquisition shouldn't affect your programs one way or another, right? It's you're investing in getting new donors. But you should see results that encourage you, encourage the board to invest more in future years. And then really start to see, okay, we, we do lose, we got a new client, they lose 100 donors per year. All right, are you getting over 100 new donors per year? And they go, oh, I, I hope we can. No, no, let's plan to. <laughs> like the, the, this is your plan to get over a hundred new donors and mm. here's the spending for that. And, you know, $5,000 doesn't get you that many new donors, but it encourages you to under, understand what 10 and 20 would look like. Cause it's even easier, the more money you add. Um, and really the last one is I, I would encourage if you're limited to $5,000 dollars, um, an entrepreneurial thing to do anytime you have a constraint is going, well, what opportunities does this provide me? And so many charities, when you, like, the best ones, I should say, make use of their major donors as investors and, and not literal because they can't buy shares in your organization, but saying like, hey, if we did $5,000, like I would be, it'd be so amazing if you could say that you're matching their gift. Though I'll be honest, you know, Alex and I, one of our strategists, we have a client doing a match and their acquisition has made me quite queasy. But having said that, it's also like, hey, our charity can only put up $5,000 uh, for acquisition 
can you can you match it so we can invest ten thousand dollars and and get double the donors? And what I'm saying is, it just provides you another opportunity for a different type of ask of a of a more engaged, higher value donor. And if not, it's like, hey, here's what we did with that. You know, here's here's our results from the five thousand. We really want it to be ten twenty next year. Like, can you can you help us? accelerate our growth right like a lot of entrepreneurial major donors love hearing about stuff like that because it's also reducing the dependence on them yeah well and feeding into the future i think it's so important there i'm just like this is going to help us yeah i think even when you know you think of major donors who pledge because they care deeply and they want to feed into that like legacy giving which it isn't called more so than plant giving because uh, the connotation that we we want to make that giving experience hold that's great and i think like one other point maybe i would add is also just like once these one to two percent of donors who we've acquired through this do decide to give a first gift are we making sure we're putting them on a path so that they become more engaged and give their second gift and third gift and fourth gift as they go along like if you're not doing any direct mail at the moment is direct mail acquisition the right path for you probably not unless you like have the opportunity to invest in it and build that program as it goes on. But yeah, I think especially mindful of that, I think is really important too. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. And you know, there's plenty of opportunities throughout this podcast. If you uh, are listening to this and your name is not Chantel, thank you for editing this Chantel, is, is like, oh, if there's like a bone of contention or a question, like this is, this is what our podcast is for. It's not to be a definitive thing, but to speak on it further in the future. This is, the, these are kind of hardened opinions, but they're, you know, up to nuance and, you know, are, are there exceptions to things? Yes. And yeah, I'd just be, love to hear if anyone, if, if anyone finds something that stands out to them that, that will kind of re- relies on us fleshing it out further. Mm-hmm. And yeah. We've got our opinion of what works and we're excited because a lot of it's working right now. And so I kind of, I think we're just two, two people that are really excited to share what we perceive as our best practices right now. Yeah, it's a, certainly for you and I, Ben, it's a fun time to kind of be in the world we're in. It's October 2nd, and I, I tallied up our digital results yesterday, and it just blew my mind. And, you know, I, I posted on LinkedIn, and I posted it to our team. I don't want it at all, and I don't want this podcast to be like woo-woo frontier and and there's other fundraising organizations. There's tons of ways of fundraising. I'm going to pull it up there. We, our clients and their donors were incredibly generous. Like there wasn't that much year over year change in COVID and every month's been big, but like it was 845,000 compared to 355 the year before. Oh my God. So like, like, man, if I was like, Hey, you're making $35,000 a year. And then now you're making 84. That's, that's a, like, hold on. <laughs> like, excuse me, what? Like, that's unbelievable change. And and I think it's just, you know, for our team, because it's right in the thick of fundraising season, you know, people can be like, oh, okay, well, it's up, but it's up because of COVID or it's down because of COVID. And, and uh, you know, there's so many other things where I've been there before where some people say like, oh, like, I, you know, maybe this won't last. But I, I think there is a big shift that's happened and it's, it's been helpful for organizations that, that know how to sort of capture someone's generosity. And, and we had about 4,000 more gifts 
is through our, our clients. Again, like it could be maybe someone donated a lot of money and it's like, oh, there's thousands more gifts. And most of our clients, you know, if you, you back up a little bit, have been doing kind of the same thing for the most part for years. Um, so this, it's kind of cool to celebrate that right now. Well, I think with that, why don't you close us up here? All righty. Frontier.fm is produced by Ben Johnson, Matt Hussey, and Rosie Everett. It's researched by Ines Purdue and sound engineering and editing by Chantal Lee. Adios. Adios.